come to a time of study of your word. As we worship you, Lord, would you speak to us? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Glad you guys are here with us this morning. If you want to go ahead and take your Bible and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, those of you who don't know, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians this year, and we've kind of broken down some of the chapters and grouped them together into little mini-series within a series, and right now we're in a series called When We Gather, because Paul is addressing some issues that are taking place within the Corinthian church that are happening specifically when they gather together on their Sunday morning gatherings, the first day of the week, much like we're gathered here today. We know that the big problem throughout the church in Corinth was the same problem that we have over 2,000 years later. There are many parallels between the church in Corinth and the church today, and the biggest problem that they have is culture creep. The culture is creeping into the church, and what's happening is that the Christians in their church are not living lives that are very different from the world around them. And we know that this is a problem because there are many areas, even though we don't have to run from culture, we don't have to completely separate ourselves from the culture, but we know that there are areas where the culture tends to pull us away from the things that God wants for us. And what's happening is, instead of the church going into the world and transforming the world by the power of the gospel, what we're seeing in Corinth, and too often what we see today, is that the world is actually influencing the church instead of the church influencing the world. So Paul has written this letter to correct a number of things that are going on. We know that in, church, in Corinth, the church is experiencing a number of divisions. It's experiencing a number of conflicts, uh, and it didn't begin this way. It didn't begin this way. Paul, uh, Paul had come in, and he had preached the gospel, made disciples, and then as they gathered together and he showed them the way, he was showing them something special, that God's desire was not for them to be segmented the way they, that they were normally segmented within the culture, but that they were to be one. They were to be unified. And last week, we know that, that we saw the Corinthians uh, took some of Paul's teachings, some of the things that he said about, hey, there is, there's no longer slave nor free. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer male or female. And they took this idea that, hey, we are all one. And they kind of, uh, kind of flipped it on its head and said, well, that means there's no more distinctions at all. And they applied that to gender and said, well, there's no more gender distinctions at all. And Paul has to write and correct and say, no, the, the gender distinctions that God gave us are a beautiful thing. And though we are one, and Paul does something amazing. He unites men and women in worship in ways that they had never been united before. We talked about how in the, in the Jewish synagogues, the women sat on one side and they just sat and were quiet. They didn't get to join in the singing, the praying, and the worshiping. And Paul brings them together and says, no, we, we all worship together. And we, when we come together, we get to celebrate our oneness, but we also have to understand that there are things that do make us distinct, like our gender that God created in us, and He's called us to worship Him. When we honor our Creator, when we worship Him in our maleness as men, and we honor our Creator when we worship Him in our femaleness as women. And Paul says that that's a good thing. That's a good thing. This week, we're going to look at some of the distinctions that came up, uh, some of the differences that came up in terms of the Lord's Supper. Because they were still dividing themselves in ways that were not honoring to God. And next week, we're going to start a new series, but it still falls in this same section. But we're going to start looking at the spiritual gifts and tongues 
And what's interesting is that throughout this entire section, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, this entire section, Paul's theme is unity. And what's amazing is that these three sections, these three topics, have caused more divisions in the Christian church than maybe any other passages. People dividing over gender roles, people dividing over spiritual gifts, people dividing over the Lord's Supper. Yet Paul's theme is unity. And we've created not just divisions, but entire denominations have come out of this. When Paul is writing to say, hey, you guys work through these things. Stay together. Be one church. That's what Christ has died for. And so Paul is going to write to address this week. We're going to look at communion. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 11, 11, chapter 17. Uh, Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 17. I'll get it right here in just a minute. Paul says this. He says, Now in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for worse. Now I want to stop right here. Paul is telling them that whatever they are doing when they're coming together to worship, He's saying, you're coming together not for better, but for worse. He's saying, it would actually be better if you just didn't get together. It would actually be better if you just didn't meet. Because what you're doing is so destructive to the church and to each other and to the reputation of Jesus Christ in the community, it would actually be better for you to not meet. Now, let's be clear about who Paul is, who's writing this instruction. This is not a man who just got a brand new bass boat and wants to take it out and says, you know what, maybe it's better if we just don't meet this Sunday. I, I got to hit Lake Georgetown. This isn't a, a mom who says, you know what, I'd really just love to go to brunch today, have a mimosa and, you know, relax a little bit. So it's better that we just don't meet. This isn't a kid who just got a brand new video game and wants to play through it. And so he says, you know, maybe it's better we don't meet. This is a man who has given his life for the sake of the gospel, who has given his life planting churches throughout the world to see new people reached, to see the message of Jesus Christ go forward, to see those people gathered as a church. This is the man who has given everything for the sake of the gospel. And now he's saying, if this is what you're going to do when you get together, it's better that you don't meet. And what could possibly be going on that Paul would tell them it's better that they don't meet? When is it a good time for the church of Jesus Christ to just give up meeting together? We're going to see, Paul's going to say, when you do damage to the reputation of Jesus Christ, and when you do harm to one another, it would be better if you just didn't even get together. It's a pretty sobering reality. Let's keep going. Let's look at what Paul says. Paul says this. He goes on, he says, For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. What's he saying? He's saying that when you argue, when you have fights, when you disagree, those who are truly following Jesus stand out above and beyond those who are claiming Jesus Christ in name only. Because their character is going to be represented in the way they respond to these things. He's saying, hey, the fact that you guys are arguing, sometimes that's a good thing. Because we can kind of figure out who's following Jesus and who's not. He says it's a good thing. He goes on, he says, therefore, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper 
for at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while others get drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. Paul here is getting to communion. And Paul tells him, he says, what you guys are doing to the Lord's table, to the Lord's supper is not a good thing. You've completely missed the reality of what Jesus has for you, what he has for you. He says, he goes on later and he's going to say that when we come to communion, he says there's a chance that we could be taking judgment on ourselves. Let's look at what he says. Going on, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I want to I stop right here. Notice what he says. The very first thing Paul says about communion, he says, On the night Jesus was what? Betrayed. On the night Jesus was betrayed. Now, I want us to think about this because it's, it's a sobering reality. Why is this so important that Jesus was betrayed? Because it's so common. And you may be here this morning and you may have experienced betrayal. Has anyone here ever experienced betrayal? Ever been betrayed? Maybe it was a friend who stabbed you in the back? Or a business partner who told you, yeah, we're always going to get along, we're going to share things 50-50, and then over time they started lying to you, started cheating you? Maybe it was a spouse who stood before the congregation in the Lord and said, till death do us part. And they've abandoned you. They've left you. Maybe it was a parent that there was an implied love relationship that you never got. You never got to receive that love, and so you feel betrayed. What you need to know is that Jesus Christ himself has experienced that betrayal. Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, and he knows that that is a hard thing for us to overcome. That's probably one of the hardest things for us to forgive and oftentimes when, as a church, when we're hurt by someone in the church, it feels like an absolute betrayal. And that, and that can be the hardest thing for us to get beyond, to extend forgiveness in that area. But God's calling us to extend forgiveness in that area. You see, the Corinthians, when they came together, there were divisions among them. They weren't unified at all. You had one group of people that were looking down on another group of people. And those that were looked down on felt betrayed, felt left out. Before we go on with the message this morning, I want to ask you to take some time and think about this. Is there someone in this church from whom you're withholding forgiveness? Someone who has hurt you? Someone who has damaged you? Maybe it's a, a brother and sister in Christ that's not even at this church. But is there someone from whom you're withholding forgiveness that you need to to think about? Or what about this? Is there a group of people? Is there a group of people that you are struggling with, that you look down upon, a, a broken relationship? A group of people that you look down upon. Maybe it's a theological difference. 
And you say, well, I'm better than that person because I understand this passage this way. Maybe it's a political difference. And you look at them and you say, how could any Christian possibly vote for that party? How could any Christian possibly vote for that candidate? They must not be real Christians. And you look down on them because of their political differences. What you need to understand is that politics will not save you. That is not where our hope is. Let's wake up, people. Let's wake up. Is there a person? Is there a group of people that you have a broken relationship with? That God is calling you to be restored in that relationship, to be unified in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to keep that in mind as we, as we work through this. Because Paul says, look, when the church can't get along, when the church can't forgive one another and love one another, and they start harming one another, it would be better for them to not meet. It would be better for them to not meet. The first thing I want us to see in this passage is that broken community breaks communion. Broken community breaks communion. I want to challenge you this week to think through, is there someone in my life with whom I have a broken community? Because if we're going to be united, if we're going to be on mission together, we have to be in community with each other. Let's look at verses 20 through 22. Paul says, Therefore, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal, each one gets drunk, Uh, Each one eats his own supper ahead of others, so one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have your own houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down, some translations say, or do you despise the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? Now, let's talk about this, because most of us are looking at this and we're, we're thinking, you know, this doesn't sound like any communion that I've ever taken. And we kind of have to understand what's, what's the background to this, what's happening here. Uh, first thing is that it sounds like people are getting drunk and there's this meal that's taking place beforehand. What, what is happening here? Well, communion uh, is, at this time was somewhat mixed with a meal. We know from Jude 12 that they had these things called a love feast. And what they would do is they would gather and they would celebrate this meal together. And they took that kind of from the original Lord's Supper. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, this is the Passover. Jesus is stopping, and he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And so there's a big meal that takes place, and he's having this meal with them. And as he has this meal with them, he actually kind of takes it, and he changes the meaning of the meal for them so that it now has a new meaning. He's taking what was used from the Old Testament to remember the Passover, and he's reminding the—during the Passover is when the Jews would remember— when they were delivered miraculously from Egypt, the night when God told them, hey, take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on your doorsteps because I'm going to send the angel of death. And those who are truly following me, who are believing in me and trusting in me, they will be covered by the blood and the angel of death will pass over. And they would celebrate this every year. But in the middle of this meal, Jesus takes the bread that represented the word of God in the Old Testament and it represented Uh, the miracle that God did in the desert with them, providing for them. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. He's saying, I am the sacrifice. I am the true sacrifice. The one that will bring forgiveness of your sins. I am the one that will take away the sins of the earth. And he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. 
this is my blood of the new covenant. He picks up this idea, and the church takes this idea of the Passover meal as Jesus changed the meaning. Actually, he didn't change the meaning. He fulfilled the meaning of the Passover meal, that he was the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And he fulfills that meaning. So the church had picked that up, and they said, you know what, we're going to do a big meal. We're going to do a big celebration. We're going to have a giant feast, and then we're going to remember communion together. Now, the early church didn't have buildings to meet in like we do. So what they would do is they would gather at the largest home of one of their members. Whoever had the biggest house is where they would gather. And when they would gather for communion for this meal, what would happen is you had a couple groups of people. You had one group of people that was extremely wealthy, and they could get there early. They didn't have to worry about getting there when their boss let them off for work or the slaves when their masters would let them off of work. So they would get there early, and they would start eating and drinking. And by the time the others got there, by the time those who had, who had less money, and really in this time, there was no middle class. You had the extremely wealthy, and you had the extremely poor. By the time those who were extremely poor got there, the food was gone and communion had been taken and people were drunk. And Paul says, when you do this, man, you're, you're despising the church of God. You're despising the other believers, the other followers of Jesus Christ. And it's not a good thing. You see, Galatians 3.28, Paul tells us, tells us this. He says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Paul says, when the gospel comes, when the gospel changes you, all those barriers, all those social barriers are to be broken down. We break those down and we become one. There's no more rich and poor, slave and free, men and women. They're all getting saved when Paul comes to Corinth. And Paul says, now you are the church. You are one body. You are the church, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female. You are the body of Christ. And this is a very radical step for people in this day. Because in those days, the rich didn't associate with the poor. The educated Greek speakers didn't, didn't associate with the barbarians, those who couldn't speak Greek. And men socially didn't mix with women. And Paul says, now you're one body. Now you're one body. Yet when they come together and it's time for the Lord's Supper, they're not acting that way. They're not acting as one. They're selfish. They're only concerned with themselves. The rich are despising the poor. They're only thinking about what's in it for me. What's in it for me? As I thought about that this week, I really started to think through what is the application today? And I've already challenged you a little bit to think through are there people or groups of people that you look down on? thinking that you're somehow superior to them? And if so, I'd encourage you to, to extend forgiveness, to work to repair those relationships. But I also saw in this passage something else. I saw that you had one group that was coming and only consuming. And you had another group that was doing the contributing. And I started thinking about that this week. I started thinking about our own church body and what it is that God desires for us, that, that the church at Corinth had a problem and that problem was selfishness. There were people who were coming to this meal and they were making it all about themselves. I just need to be filled. I just need to be fed. Make this about me and my preferences. And they were separating themselves from the others who were out doing the work. 
I want to ask you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a visitor, this doesn't apply to you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this doesn't apply to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you this morning. When you worship with River Rock Bible Church, are you a contributor or just a consumer? Are you a contributor to this body or just a consumer? Do you use your gifts? Honor the Lord by by worshiping Him with your gifts when you come on Sunday morning? Do you honor the Lord by worshiping with your time, your talents, and your treasure? Or do you just take and take and take? Paul's desire, God's desire for the church was that everyone would be contributing. And when everyone contributes, everyone gets to receive as well. Paul's encouraging them. He's saying, don't be drunk on your own consumerism. Because when you do, your actions show that you despise the church. and You humiliate those who are giving and serving faithfully. Next thing I want us to see is this, the, the message of communion. He's, Paul's going to talk about the words of communion and how to actually take communion. And when he talks about the message, he's, he's actually going to be reminding them why they take communion. What we're going to see in this is that communion focuses on unity and not distinctiveness. Communion is going to show them, the words of communion are going to remind them what they have in common, not what separates them. Because right now they're just looking at outward things that separate them. Paul says, I want to remind you of what you have in common. Starting in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, said, This is the cup in the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What's happening here is that Paul is reminding them of the words of Jesus Christ. How he changed the meaning. And he's showing them and reminding them that this all took place just before Jesus died on the cross and was sacrificed for us. The one thing that every single person has in common is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. It was only Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross that provided forgiveness of our sins. And Paul is saying, that's the one thing you have in common. These words of communion are to be a reminder of that common thread that runs rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, you all have in common that you need Jesus Christ. We've already talked about that Jesus was betrayed. And it's, it's so significant because it's so common and many of us have, have been betrayed. And it's hard for us to understand at times this betrayal. But what we also have to understand is that every single one of us is a betrayer. Whether we like it or not, we have betrayed the God that created us. And you may think, well, I've been pretty good. How have I betrayed the God who created me? Let's think back to God's original intent. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he placed them on the earth. He took Adam and formed him out of the dust and breathed the breath of life into him. And he placed them in the garden. And he says, you are to be my representative. He says, rule over the earth and have dominion. What he's saying is you are going to be my representatives on earth, that through you, society would see my character, my love, my righteousness, my justice. Through you, the plants, the animals, the world would see God's character. 
Yet every single one of us have made decisions that don't reflect God's character to the world. And when we do, we make decisions that betray Him, that betray our original purpose, and we betray our Creator. I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we were to ask, have I perfectly, have I perfectly been a reflection, a representative of God's character on this earth, every single one of us would have to say no. We've betrayed our Creator. And when we do, we're no better than Judas. No better than Judas. We find ourselves in places where we decide that, you know what? I know God put me here for His purpose, but if it suits me, if it benefits me, then I'll cheat if I need to cheat. I'll steal if I need to steal. I'll lie if I need to lie. I'll do whatever makes me happy because this life is about me. And when we do, we betray our Creator. Challenge yourself this week to think through, has the world seen God through my life? How well am I being that representative, that reflection of God to the creation? And the reality is that all of us, all of us have fallen short of that. The passage goes on and tells us that Jesus took the bread and the cup. Jesus wasn't held captive by his betrayer. He acted on his own free will. He takes the bread and he takes the cup and he reminds them, he uses this as a time to to help them remember. What does he say? Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion is about remembering that Jesus fixed our broken relationship with the Father. Jesus fixed our broken relationship with the Father, and that's the one thing we all have in common. Verse 24, Paul says this. He says, Jesus gave thanks, broken, and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, there's a lot of confusion about, in Christianity about what exactly are the bread and what exactly are the cup. And I want to clear up some confusion that's out there. We can go to the original disciples and understand a little bit better about what's taking place because there are some traditions of Christians who say that when we take communion that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ and the wine or Baptist grape juice uh, actually becomes the blood of Christ. Now, I can tell you that when Jesus was breaking the bread at the Last Supper with the disciples, when he says, this is my body broken for you, not a single person in that room at that table was looking at him saying, oh, well, that just became his flesh. And when he takes the cup and says, this is the cup of the new covenant established in my blood, I, I can tell you, Peter wasn't thinking, oh, did he cut himself and some of his blood got in there? Like that, that wasn't their understanding. They understood that this was a symbol This was something that God was using to remind them that Jesus had died for them, that Jesus had died for them. So we have these symbols as reminders. It's symbolic. It's metaphorical language that he's using here. The blood represents his life poured out for us, and the bread represents his body that the next day would be sacrificed on the cross for our behalf. Verse 24, he says, He says, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body which is for you. This is where we get the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's a big fancy theological word that just means Jesus took our place. That we had a price, we had a penalty of sin that we could not pay for ourselves. Yet Jesus took our place on the cross. He paid that penalty for us. He was our substitute. He was our substitute. 
And he says, when you eat these symbols, when you eat the bread, when you drink the wine, remember that I died for you. Remember my sacrifice on your behalf. And Paul's telling them, these words have meaning. These words remind you of your own need for Jesus Christ, your own need for his sacrifice that he died for you. And that is what you have in common. Never forget no matter how rich, no matter how poor, no matter what your social status is, you were still in need of a Savior. That is the one thing that unites every single one of us. The next thing I want us to see is the manner in which we take communion. The manner in which we take communion. And what we're going to see in this is that division and disunity will result in discipline. Division and disunity will result in discipline. When we come to the Lord's table and we take communion, yet there's division, there's unforgiveness. We've actively or passively worked to be divisive within the church. Paul's going to tell us that there's discipline that will take place. Paul says in verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That sounds pretty serious. I don't know about you, but I think that sounds pretty serious. So a man should examine himself in this way, eat the, uh, in this way, eat the bread, uh, eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognize the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are sick and ill, and many have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for dying. So Paul is saying, some of you are being disciplined by the Lord and are actually dying because of the divisions taking place in the church. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together, eat. Come together to eat. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather, you will not come under judgment. And I will give instructions about other matters when I come. So Paul is telling them, there's a certain manner in which we have to take the Lord's Supper. He says there's a right way and a wrong way. There's a manner that we come and we remember. Now, when I was growing up, I understood this passage to mean that if I just threw up a quick prayer and asked God to forgive all my sins that I'd committed since, since I could remember, uh, then I was good with God and I could take communion. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. And that comes from uh, a translation, the King James translation. In 1611, King James gathered a bunch of scholars and he had them write an English translation. And when they translated this word, unworthy manner, they translated it unworthily. And it caused a lot of confusion because what started happening was people started thinking, well, I'm unworthy to take the Lord's Supper unless I confess my sins. And what that does is that, that creates kind of a bad picture because the reality is every single one of us is unworthy. In fact, the Lord's table is not a place for people who, who are worthy. It's the exact opposite. It's a place for sinners. It's where sinners are welcome. Sinners who've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is not about just throwing up a quick prayer because let's be honest, a quick prayer that said 20 seconds, to conf- 20 seconds before that bread hits your hand is not true repentance. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you shouldn't come before the, in re- before the Lord and repent as you take communion. Remembering his sacrifice for your sins, I think that's a good thing. But there's a deeper meaning in this passage. What does it say? What does he say? He says, so a man should examine himself in this way he should eat 
the bread and drink the cup for whoever eats and drinks without what? Without recognizing the body. Now, which body is he talking about? If we flip back to chapter 10, he's going to tell us what he means by the body. He's not talking about the body of Jesus, the physical body of Jesus Christ. He's going to tell us something else in verse 16 and 17. He says, the cup of blessing that we give thanks for, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all of us share one bread. So Paul says, the manner that we come to take communion is that we have to remember the body of Jesus Christ, the other believers that are around us, that we're in community with. And he says, when you come together and you're in conflict with another believer, yet you take communion without considering them, without thinking about other people, without thinking about how I'm serving them. He says, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. We eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Paul wants us to be aware, just as Jesus did. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you come to worship the Lord and you come to sacrifice and you remember that your brother has something with you, something against you, go and be reconciled. Then come back and offer your sacrifice. He's saying this horizontal relationship that we have with the Father the vertical relationship we have with the Father is, is as important as our horizontal relationship. When we come to worship, when we come to gather, we have to be aware that it's not just a one-way relationship. We have the others around us that we have to be aware of. When you come to take communion, do you spend time thinking through, have I treated people poorly? Have I acted in a way that's, that's unforgiving? Have I been judgmental, looking down upon? And many of us think that if I can come and, and I didn't commit adultery this week, I didn't steal anything, I didn't lie, I didn't murder anybody, I'm good, I'm good with the Lord. Yet we fail to realize that in some way we may have wronged our brother, we may be withholding forgiveness. We think that we're righteous, yet we're griping we're complaining, we're backbiting, we're mistreating others. What's more important? What's more important? Is it just that we have a clean slate before God or the way that we treat others? I think Paul would say the way that we treat others is important for us to remember as we come. There are so many things that the body of Christ can do to hurt one another when we're unforgiving, when we're judgmental. And I want to thank God at, at this church. I thank God that, that this is not a major issue for us, but we still have a long way to go. And I can only speak for myself personally. I, I, don't, I, don't have, I, I don't have any stories that I'm going to share or anything, so some of you are sweating right now, but no, I'm not going to, sh- I'm not going to share any stories. But we all have a long way to go to get past our judgmentalism, to get past our unforgiveness, to make sure that we're living in a way that puts others first. I want us to remember that the church ought to be a place where sinners are welcomed and loved, but they're changed. Think about Jesus' encounter with the sinful woman, the woman who's literally caught in the act of adultery. 
She's brought before Jesus, and at the end of the encounter, Jesus is left with this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, and he's shown her that her ways are wrong, yet he's loved her in a way that she stays around. And the reality is that the religious leaders couldn't handle it, and they all walked away. And Jesus is there left with this sinful woman whose sins are forgiven. That ought to be the church. The church ought to be a place where those who are sinful come and they experience God's love and they hear a message that God has something better for you. And it's faith in Jesus Christ. And that may mean there are some changes that need to take place in your life. But you are loved regardless of where you are, regardless of what's taking place in your life. The Lord's table is a place for sinners Every single one of us fits that description this morning. When we come together at the table, we're all just sinners desperately in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. Originally, when I planned this message, I planned for us to take communion together. But I, as I prepared this week, I decided it would be better if we waited. I want to give us a week. I want us to take a week, every single one of us, and to pray through, God, is there anyone in my life that I need to forgive? I have have two questions that I want us to think through. The first question is this, am I in unity with God? Am I in unity with God? If you are here this morning and you have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you are absolutely welcome here. If you say, I'm still seeking, I don't have all the answers, I don't know that that I can trust this Jesus thing yet. I want you to know, number one, you're not alone. We have many here who that used to be their story. And there are many others here who still have that story. You're not alone and you are welcome to ask your questions. We want to walk that journey with you. If there's any way we can help you, we want to be here for you. But as you ask that question, am I in unity with God? I, I want to challenge you with this. When the plate comes around and when we take communion next week, let's remember what we're saying. We're saying that the bread and the wine, or grape juice in our case, represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and we're remembering that He died for our sins and that we are saved through His sacrifice. And if you're here and you say, you know what, I'm, I've not yet trusted in Christ, why would you, why would you take of that? It has no meaning. If you're saying, I haven't yet trusted in that, yet there's supposed to be symbols that remind us of what we've trusted in, then it has no meaning for you. It's okay, just let the plate pass. There's no judgment here. You can let the plate pass and no one will judge you. Or better yet, you can trust. You can believe. And there are those here who who have been in your position and they've said, I just don't understand it all yet. And they come to a point where they say, you know what, I finally realized I'm never going to understand it all, but I believe. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust that God will work this out. I challenge you this week, ask that first question, am I in unity with God? The second question I challenge you to ask is, am I in unity with God's people? Do I have broken relationships that need to be mended? Have I talked down to someone? Have I looked down on someone, mistreated someone? Have I been the thorn in the side of another follower of Jesus at River Rock Bible Church? When I come, am I contributing or am I just consuming? 
Is there anything that I'm doing that's keeping others from experiencing the blessing of being one body? And I want to challenge you to think through that this week. And depending on your answer, that you would seek forgiveness or that you would seek to be reconciled. I mentioned earlier, Jesus says, when you come with a sacrifice, you come to worship the Lord and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice, go and be reconciled and come back and then worship. Because the reality is this, if you have a problem with the family, you have a problem with the father. If you have a problem with the family, you have a problem with the father. And we need to fix those problems we have with the family first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Lord, as we prepare to take communion as a body next week, God, would you show us any areas of our lives where we need to continue to be changed by you, where we would understand.